Welcome to Sacrifice and Success, a podcast that looks at what we give up in order to thrive. I'm John Hegarty, chairman of Soho-based independent media agency Electric Glue. In this series, I'm talking to people from the creative industries about what they have sacrificed to be where they are today. With me is Lord Daniel Finkelstein, OBE, a renowned journalist and politician. He is a former executive editor of The Times for whom he continues to write a weekly political column and is chair of the think tank Onward. Daniel was made a member of the House of Lords in 2013, sitting as a Conservative, the party he joined more than 30 years ago in 1990. He's also a big football fan. Chelsea FC, to be precise, as you'll hear. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to Daniel Finkelstein. I think one of Britain's great journalists. Um, of course, I'm a Guardian reader and he's a, he's a Times reader. So yeah, hopefully we'll find some common ground somewhere along the line. Daniel, I, I always think journalism requires great sacrifice uh, and it's not just your liver that you have to sacrifice but uh, all kinds of things do, do you kind of look at it and think I've had to sacrifice so much but actually I've enjoyed it I think I'll be terribly self-regarding so I've never thought of it in that way I'm incredibly lucky to be doing this amazing job and all the time I see people doing these incredible things which are either extraordinarily hard or they're doing them extraordinarily brilliantly uh, and so to uh, to think of myself in a sort of to congratulate myself on my sacrifices would be an embarrassment so I don't do that I do agree with the fundamental proposition of course you have to make choices I think it's probably the root of everything that I write and all of my politics that you have to make choices um, and rank things and sacrifice some things in order to gain others absolutely I do think that but um, but I don't think of my career in quite that way because you know I just think it would it would be sort of as it were as I said it was self self-regarding I, I think you're being very modest because I, I accept obviously that answer but I do think it it it's a very precarious um, profession isn't it I mean you know, it, 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 and especially today with the way uh, news is being um, disseminated, um, all of a sudden newsrooms are being cut and things like that. So you can see that as a profession, it could easily suffer enormously and you've got to have great faith in yeah. it. Absolutely. Look, you know, when people come to talk to me about being in journalism now, I, I, I said so you've got to take a cold look at what's happened in the world of media, that um, people are moving to a lot of audiovisual media, uh, that uh, there's a lot of challenge to the paid media from the uh, from free press and free media, um, and that uh, particularly for some new entrants, uh, salaries and job security is very poor. Um, and so uh, you've got to love it if you're going to do it. And that is a big trade-off. Um, so, uh, you know, well, like any career choice it is. Um, but uh, it doesn't put a lot of people off, actually. Um, it's still remarkably popular, uh, particularly the thought of becoming sports journalists, but also political journalists. Well, definitely. I mean, um, uh, so do you think technology has changed the way you write? Is it affecting your writing? Um, well, definitely I can't imagine writing uh, without being able to use sophisticated word processing software. It would be awful. I, actually, that's not quite true. I can imagine it. When I first started, I worked for a magazine called Network, 
which was the first um, magazine for the uh, for linked computers, computer networks magazine. And ironically, we only had one computer which wasn't linked to anything, which we'd <laughs> won in a competition. Um, and when it wasn't your turn to use the computer to do an article, you had to use a, a golf ball computer, golf ball typewriter. I remember which, them well. Which, it was correcting, so it was it was one step onwards from uh, kind of completely manual typewriters, electric and correcting, uh, but it really did um, make it harder to write. So um, I, I do write, actually, in a way that's fundamentally suitable to a typewriter. I tend to write uh, in a linear fashion. I start at the beginning, and, then I re- and eventually I reach the end, and I don't tend to do what other people will do, which is write a lot of stuff and then cut it. So I... I do, uh, you know, the technology hasn't probably altered that that much, but it's just so amazing. And I tell you the other thing that is incredibly important is just the internet, actually. Forget the word processing software. The bigger way it's influenced me is simply having the internet itself. I'm just working on a book on my parents, and my aunt had left a list of the children that she and my mother and their sister had played with on the streets of Amsterdam. It was a little kids' club newsletter with the children listed on it. And there are 17 children on it, and I was able to trace the fate of 15 of them. Wow. Just simply, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't absolutely only the internet, but it was primarily. So my view is that... The, the accuracy and depth of information that journalists are able to and authors um, are able to, to 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 access and provide to their readers is simply infinitely greater. And it offsets, I think, any kind of um, challenge that the Internet might provide to journalism. Uh, if you if you I'm very you know keen on reading about the history of the Times. In my view, the Times has never been stronger than it is now, journalistically, simply because of the sheer quantity and quality of the information we can access and provide people. You know, the colour pictures, the uh, the uh, extraordinary ease with which we can create and change headlines, uh, the flexible layout. Um, th- those things are just a, a, a big step on from what we were able to provide even 20 years ago. And of course, the reach, because, you know, 20 years ago, you had to print the newspaper and give it to me or I had to buy it. Now I can subscribe and be in Kuala Lumpur uh, reading the Times. So it's a great, it's a phenomenal opportunity for organisations with great ethics and great values and that people will buy into. Just going back there for a moment, but you touched a little bit on the, the you're doing this um, book on the history of your family. And of course, your 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 mother was at Bergen-Belsen. And you don't mind me asking this, but I, I kind of look at that and say, how does that, however you want to describe it, not constantly affect your life? How does it, how do you not wake up every morning angry <laughs> no i never do that uh i don't think i've ever done that and i don't think mum did either she you know and 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 also the other part of the story the reason why i'm writing about both my parents is my father was in uh siberia his father was in the gulag um and i don't think he did either um it was partly a, i'm i'm pondering this very point at the beginning of the uh book that i'm writing because uh, what was remarkable about both my parents was they were neither of them like that, and they didn't want us to be like that. And my mother always said that she's a uh, she was a person and a teacher and a, uh, a housewife and a parent um, first, uh, and only then a survivor. 
she didn't really want to think of herself like that because she didn't want to dominate everything her life and she didn't want to spend her whole life feeling that she'd been a victim uh, and um her father was fundamentally optimistic about human nature it had, it had animated his campaigning against the nazis and his post war work um and um i think that's very much my attitude too so it's definitely you know with my parents you i suppose you can have this experience and think to yourself, I can, I can see Stalin and Hitler in everything, right? I can see it around every corner. My parents really took the opposite view, which was they'd experienced what it was really like and they felt you could see it in nothing. They would never have an argument with their neighbour about a hedge. You know, they wouldn't quit the synagogue council in a furious temper because it just wasn't worth it. Yeah, I love that. I always, uh, one of my all-time favourite movies is Mel Brooks' The Producers. And I remember him when it came out, you know, springtime for Hitler. And and he said, he was interviewed and said, do you think this is right that you're doing this? And he said, the only thing I can do is laugh at them. That's the power I have. And I think that's a great quality for people to kind of hold on to. And I think that sense of humour as a, as I don't like to call it a weapon, but as something that you can always use against somebody who's trying to put you down or is trying to do something which isn't good or whatever it might be. And we forget the power of humour. Sure. So your, your programme's about choices, by the way. And, you know, one, uh, and by the way, one of the things that you have in life is, and my parents felt, is you've got a choice about how you respond to these things. And my, and my parents, my mother definitely had a choice. My father had a choice. Were they going to let these experiences overshadow their lives and they refused to do that they weren't going to be victims for the rest of their life now um that didn't mean that any of us forgot it it's a very deep strand in my politics of course um, since i've become a journalist and particularly since my parents died and i felt that somebody needed to tell these stories and they no longer could i've talked a lot about it um but um but never in the sense that uh that you you asked which is a sense of sort of feeling a fury at mankind i just i suppose i feel this determination that we can do better and sometimes well the way that i put it is to be against the far right is a fairly standard view of people in my generation who kind of work in journalism and you know uh of liberal inclination um i'm probably more against the far left than is standard yeah. <laughs> um, as a result of my yeah. dad's experience. So I suppose it has affected that. I think um, but your writing was described as uh, intelligent and witty. Uh, and again, that sense of using humour to drive your point is something, is that something you've, you've kind of consciously done? or No, actually, the interesting thing about researching my family history is to discover how similar I am to my paternal, grand, my maternal grandfather. Uh, very often his political reaction to some of these momentous events is exactly as I'd imagined mine to be. And he also had, which my mother had too, a sort of inclination to make jokes um, about every situation that he was in, which is occasionally inappropriate, actually. But, uh, is a <laughs> Could get you natural, into trouble there, yeah. Yeah, it's a you have to be careful that you know who you're doing it to, but it's a natural reaction of mine. Um, and I think it's just who you are, really, rather than anything else. And, um, yeah, I, I do accept that sometimes that frivolity is inappropriate. I mean, advertising teaches you that, that humour is one of the greatest 
forces that can be used in when you're trying to persuade somebody. Um, and that great that great sort of thing about the teacher you really listen to is the one that made you smile and made you laugh. And we forget about the power, I think, of humour to persuade and to involve and to include people, which I think is fundamentally oh, but important. But another slightly embarrassing thing, which was that when I was working originally for William Hague, and it's even earlier than that, I got a reputation for being able to write jokes for speeches. And politicians are always desperate for jokes for speeches um, because you know, it's important to a speech, for the reason you just said. Um, not everyone can deliver them, by the way, but it's important if they can to try to do that. Uh, it's a skill, but it's, but it's still very important for conference speeches. And, other. and as a result, people tend to come to me to ask for jokes for speeches. And you, you feel very flattered at first that some very important person has... Um, on the phone or has put their assistant on the phone asking for your assistance with it until they realise that they're not actually after your wisdom, but just <laughs> whether you've got an appropriate one-liner. You've got a one-liner you can give me. <laughs> it is a real skill. So what? So you know, most of your your journalistic career has been with The Times. I think you were, were you deputy editor of The Times? At, at, at I was executive editor. Executive editor, yeah. yeah. I, ne I never quite yeah. understand all those. <laughs> Number three is the basic yeah, yeah. Way, best way. It sounds to me very, very important. Is all I can say. Oh, I was incredibly important. Do you sense that thing with the Times though that it that it has it's a it's a kind of newspaper that tries to record what is going on rather than just issue opinions? Was that an important part of being a, a member of the Times? I think it's a great institution. I love the fact that it has a a long history. At different times in its history, it's been more distinguished than others. It's made big mistakes. I've probably contributed to some in more recent times, um, but it's but it generally speaking, um, it's attracts some incredibly capable, intelligent people to work on it, and it has pretty high standards. And um, that doesn't, you know, I think what people sometimes when they spot an error in the paper, I you know, different kinds of errors. There can be errors of taste, errors of judgment, or simply spelling errors or whatever, and they and they're horrified that this could have been happened but you know we're doing something like producing the whole of war and peace every day it's not surprising that in the process of doing that we make mistakes um but on the whole the quality of that i think is very high and um and intellectually you know i feel stimulated by the colleagues i have there so yes i think it's um it's a very good paper but you know you you mentioned the guardian i don't obviously agree with every political judgment of the guardians um but particularly in its kind of culture and arts and sections and everything that is an extremely good newspaper um so we're not the only one um by any means but i do i i do think in a sort of um, biased fashion that we're the best <laughs> and I do like working for the best. In, in kind of because you, you, you were a speechwriter for for um, William Hague, you said, and I think um, Theresa May. Do, do you think one of the things that we say in advertising, believe it or not, is that the truth is the most powerful weapon you've got and that we seem to be living in a post truth world or we're told we are um i won't go into the current prime minister because that, that'll get us off into a different road but the power of truth in a in a political context seems to be very questionable uh, and getting people to understand that it's important seems to be something that i think we've lost yeah, okay so there, there are a number of things i'd say on that the, the first is it's interesting to talk about the power of truth it was one of my my grandfather my mother's father's 
great beliefs in it. His life's work was collecting material on the Nazis that they'd produced themselves and just simply showing that to people in an attempt to persuade them. And interestingly enough, it didn't work by itself, but it did, it was powerful and he believed very strongly in it. And ultimately it was used in the Nuremberg trials and the Eichmann trials. So it did triumph in its own way. Um, so I first of all think that the truth is very powerful and it's very important. Um, there are one of the things that I do when I talk to politicians, when I talk about how you might handle a question, I said, can we start by understanding what you actually really think about this and what you think the truth is and then we can go from there because if you can establish that and you can then say well why might you not be able to share that particular thing with the public at the moment then you can do that in an honest way and I think that is the most powerful thing and where I'm successful the person I'm talking to will will accept that um one of the less well-known reasons why, polit they're, they're, why politicians sometimes don't tell the truth is because they don't know it. So one of the politics... Polit In what sense don't they know it? They, they, they're asked a question about a complicated area of policy and oh, they I don't see. know either what their, poli their own policy is or some of the details of it. Um, and um, that can lead them to making false claims or false statements in the hope that they're roughly correct right um and that so that there are and and that i'm not saying that some people don't do it deliberately but there are a whole host of reasons why sometimes people don't tell the truth um i think sometimes it is a misconceived view that you know the the, the famous um uh thing from aaron sorkin in few good men you can't handle the truth i think the electric can um sometimes it's because um, they worry that they'll be they'll be letting others down because an agreement hasn't been reached with others yet and they can't therefore say what they really think because it hasn't been agreed with other people and that leads them to it. And sometimes it's because they don't actually know what they're talking about. <laughs> which is, um, which slightly, is a more frequent thing yeah. than one would imagine. I mean, I would accept it if they just simply said, look, um, you're asking me a very detailed question about a very detailed policy. I don't know the absolute details. I can't really answer that at this moment in time. Come back yeah. tomorrow. Sometimes that works, right? So sometimes that works. But um, if you are dealing with uh, the details of someone's income or their universal credit or some crucial crucial law and you're a government minister or the prime minister, um, people can be very offended by that answer. So it doesn't always work. So occasionally um, the, the the second best option of trying to obfuscate a bit is a is a better than any of the other options you've got. Or, or, or answer a different question. Yeah. Or I yeah. I love it when you you concept. I'd like to make it perfectly clear. And when a politician uses that phrase, you know they're going to obfuscate. Here we go. You know. Yeah. To be fair to them, it's usually because they. It's usually because by the time you're saying that, you're saying it about something which the other person isn't clear about. Yes. You're trying to make it clear, um, and usually that doesn't work. Well, there, there must have been, when you were there as executive uh, editor, and that, were, there, were there many stories that you thought, we just can't print this? Um, I don't remember many things like that, but there have occasionally, I know, and I don't even want to talk about, well, there are occasionally pictures of people, for example, like hugely personal moments of tragedy, and the paper decides it's inappropriate to uh, 
to print those stories. Um, the, the most famous and most difficult one of these was Charles Kennedy's alcoholism, because when it when it then came became um, he admitted to it or admitted to it, he said that you know he said it was a problem that he was suffering from. Uh, everybody said, well, we all knew that, and to a certain extent, we did, but did we know it well enough to publish it? And secondly, was it appropriate to publish it? Those were very difficult questions, and in the end, it didn't get um, published that that story until it happened. So I suppose that was actually on one occasion, um, one of my colleagues did publish it, and uh, something alluding to it, and the Liberal Democrats attempted to sue her. So we had to actually withdraw it because the, you know, we couldn't get the we couldn't get his colleagues to agree that they would appear in court if we were sued. But that's sorts. counter, isn't it? That that is it's great to hear that because that's counter to what people believe that the press will publish anything if they possibly can and it's all about sales rather than it's about the integrity well, i'll tell you another example of this actually um i'll tell you an example of a story we really didn't run and i think that was right we discovered um 24 hours before the um the open uh, opening ceremony of the olympics that the queen was going to do that thing with daniel craig daniel craig yeah and we had a discussion about it at news conference. And my brilliant colleague, Anne Spatman, who was at that point comment editor, said, there's not a single reader we've got who'd thank you for running that story. Yes. And spoiling everyone's surprise. And we didn't run it. And you didn't run it, and quite rightly so, too. Did you, did, but sitting in those meetings, though, I mean, you are kind of, in a way, you, you, you're part of history in the making, uh, as, as I like to say. Do, do you miss that? Do you miss that? sense of not being there because you, you've stepped outside of it slightly now? No, I still go to those. I'm still involved in quite a lot of those meetings. And um, uh, admittedly, I don't do it every day, but I do quite often go. Um, and it's very, yeah, it is very exciting. And leader conference in the Times can be very exciting. It can, you know, you can feel that it really um, matters and you are also trying to make up your mind on big questions. So that can be very, yeah, it can be very, look, I, I, that is definitely one of the reasons why I've opted to have my career in politics and journalism um the 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 uh, the probably the best single exposition of why most people are you know um really find politics unbelievably stimulating in addition to what the opportunity to kind of advance your opinion uh, is the room where it happens in hamilton yes you know, yeah. there is something amazing about being in the room where it happens yeah, that's yeah, it. Getting and, and close Hamilton, to the fire, as they say. Well, that's, that song was about two things. It was about Hamilton and, you know, Jefferson Madison getting something done that they both wanted to do and doing a deal, uh, that something they believed was the right thing to do. Um, but it was also about, you know, Aaron Burr saying he'd wanted to be in the room where it happened. I, you know, that was a brilliant exposition. Of brilliant, that, yeah. The, the other thing, I mean, your your uh, Everything in Moderation, which is this wonderful collection, this book of yours with a collection of all your articles. Uh, and you're a great proponent of moderation. But again, it's hard making that the hero, isn't it, in a world where people want or seem to seek extremes? Yeah, Look, there is a there sort of a, is a bit of a methodological flaw, which is, of course, everyone's idea of what is moderate uh, will be different from everyone else's. And, you know, my my idea of what moderate is uh, hues quite closely to the things I think are right. You know, I do recognise that there's a kind of flaw in it. But I do think e even so, there's something in the idea that so some people say all that moderation is is splitting the difference between people. And I and I said, well, if that is all what that it is. Uh, that isn't such a bad thing. 
you know your your point is about sacrifice well lots of lots of the progress of mankind has been about reciprocity the whole of the trading system is reciprocity and all of our family relationships they're all reciprocity and um you know you can argue the it's the origin of language and um the origin of you know cities it's the origin of everything right reciprocity well i think that that's correct and that you have to be prepared to give as well as take uh, and um i think that um compromise and accepting that you can't have everything that you want is as a, is of itself you know in itself a generally good thing to as a way of progressing in politics as well as being you know probably the only way you'll ever create electoral coalitions but do, but do you think not think that that is sort of in retreat right now that we, we seem to have i mean they're all kind of you know you look at what's happening in america right now you look at the argument over brexit you there's almost a sort of there isn't a willingness for people to listen to the other side and see that they might have a point of view and talk it through people take sides without any any sense that i could be persuaded and that seems to me intellectually weak well i i look i think some of some of whether you compromise is how you structure conversations uh, and we can see that with brexit right this was an issue on which we had achieved a lot of compromise over a very long period of time um and um once we went to a referendum and it was all or nothing for both sides, the, the whole system of compromise, which works through a parliamentary system, kind of broke down. Um, I, 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 I was in favour of having a referendum for all sorts of different reasons, but you've got to note that that did happen. So we learned a lesson about structuring conversations. Um, I, I also think you're right. Um, one of the guarantors of a sort of um, Western European and, uh, you know, a kind of Western liberal democratic norms has been the United States in the post-war era, uh, the kind of uh, Truman and Roosevelt's uh, decision to, inter to, to support that norm in West. And their, their retreat from that norm has profound consequences. Uh, so, yes, uh, I think I worry about that in a way that I've never before you know uh, the way that i put it is um uh, could what happened to my parents uh happen to us now and i've always previously said uh, absolutely not now i would say well it probably won't but could i say absolutely not no no and uh, should that that should worry us shouldn't it that yeah, should, it should. It, 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 a, a terrifying a terrifying thought um, that we should even, as you say, probably not, as opposed to not. Uh, and that, uh, you know, whoever listens to this is something that we should all be very, very concerned about because there, what a sacrifice uh, we would have to make then. You're listening to Sacrifice and Success, a podcast brought to you by independent media agency Electric Glue. You're now also in the Lords. Do you think it should be reformed? Do you think it needs to... I, mean, yeah. I might be putting you on the spot there. <laughs> no, that's not putting me on the spot at all. So I didn't regard accepting a peerage as being an endorsement of the system particularly. It was just, yeah. well, they've got one and I was offered a peerage. 
but I've always felt that 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 reform was necessary. And going in, I've has changed my view in two ways. One is um, I can see much more strongly um, why it exists, <laughs> what it does. Um, and I can see at the same time much more strongly what the argument for reform is, because it has a majority that is formed by a kind of accidental accretion of peers from other appointments, which is a mad way of achieving majorities in legislative chambers. So I definitely think it, um, it, it requires reform. But the problem I've got is I don't know what to do. Um, I, 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 any reform that I can think of could end up with the Lords either becoming um, totally useless because it endorses everything the government does, It'll go through periods like that yeah. where it has a majority, where it has a majority that's the same as the government and endorses everything. And the other uh, possibility is that it does, it stops everything. So, for example, at the moment, this, this government loses quite often in the House of Lords, um, but the House of Lords will, and the House of Lords will often get compromises from the government because of that. But it doesn't push it beyond a certain point because uh, it's not an elected house. If it was an elected house, it just simply would stop everything so if you had two elected houses and they didn't have the same party majority in it or say they didn't have the same electoral system on it nothing would happen ever right and if we, this is the problem yeah. in america isn't it yeah well as we and, and, and it would be worse here because in america they've got a separate executive so one of the ways that they've been getting around this is by having executive orders and things like that um we wouldn't we don't our executive um is is a parliamentary executive um so i think it would be there are look there are other countries who do things a different way uh, but i think we would have to reshape what who the government was uh, and how we appointed the government before you know for example having a directly elected prime minister uh, which was we've been the direction of which we've been going in anyway before we started to reform the house of lords and you can't just reform one bit of it um so that is so my view is kind of yes to reform, but then I start every time someone proposes one, I'm not in favour of it. It just doesn't look very good. But it is perception and reality, isn't it? The perception is that it's unelected and, and that's its problem. I do add one thing. So m my being in it um, means that I can add some insight into the debate because I've experienced it and I know it. Uh, but it also means um, that uh, I'm invested in it. Uh, and so therefore you have to discount for that uh so it's it's quite a i think the house laws is quite a tricky question um and you know i'm not so i wonder how much good for mankind it would do wrestling with that question you know but again i kind of maybe i would say that so I, I i certainly don't regard myself as a kind of you know this is the greatest system ever or this is you know, this up with this, we can no longer put. It's a little bit more in the middle. I did have a view. It was very, I won't say who he was. And I, I it was 2010, I can remember. It was when um, uh, Cameron became prime minister and I, I was at a party and I met somebody who was a newly elected Tory MP. And I congratulated him. I thought it was fantastic how exciting for him. And I said, but it's, it, it is an institution that has really undergone very little change. And it needs to change. It needs to respond to a more complex society. And he was completely opposed to that. And I said, but no institution 
around us has has not undergone fairly fundamental change to respond to uh, the world we live in. And I that's, I suppose, I feel one of the problems politics has is it doesn't seem to represent the more complex world we're living in. Uh, and that way that then, then, then it gets disregarded. And so politicians become a sort of, you know, a side issue to my life. Um, yeah. This is, I can see that point. When's your book on your your family coming out, well, Daniel? I've got. To, I've still got to finish it. Um, yeah. so uh, it, <laughs> of course, it, it, it's got to be finished by the first of May next year. Uh, I've been working on on it, a lot of research for the last couple of years. Um, so uh, I'm now writing. We should look forward to that. Now I want to move to football sure. um, because you're a great football fan. I understand you support Chelsea. I do. You do very good. Uh, Champions League last year, wasn't it? It was. It yeah. was indeed. So that that's absolutely brilliant. One of the big questions is money going to be? It's accelerated the game. It's made uh, the English league famous around the world. Yes, definitely that. But is there going to come a point when it really begins to undermine uh, what football represents, which is the community, uh, its foundations? You know, my, the, I think the biggest concern I've got in football at the moment is. Um, the economic stability of the pyramid right so of the football pyramid that's all the lower divisions uh division clubs the uh the fact that they can be quite easily taken over by people with almost no checks um who then um make very risky and irresponsible investments with absolutely no regulation of their sustainability and i think that does have to change um i i think that the problem of competitiveness uh, isn't really just the Premier League. It's actually the Champions League. If you, uh, if a team gets into the Champions League, it gets money, uh, and you can then reinvest that money in its domestic competition, ensuring its future presence in the Champions League. And that is, uh, as that is, and if you, if you, but if you were to remove the Champions League, I suspect you would remove quite a lot of the attractiveness of uh, of football, undermining the whole of the game so it's quite a delicate problem um i i, I think and, again it's a structure um, that going almost like the house of lords oh god please don't touch it you know or can, you know it's so complex well, it isn't you know again um with all these things i think the best thing to try to do is to try to um is to try to see well where can we make this better you know what can we do um work with what you know, you've my got. view is the football pyramid is not properly regulated the fit and proper person's test the test of who owns football clubs is not properly implemented um the uh games rules about finance finance and ownership are not properly properly enforced uh, i think you can do quite a lot without um you know before you uh decide that you're going to tear everything up right um so um you know, one of the things, the reasons, I, and I think that's actually the best approach to reform, but I do think some of those problems in football have become quite urgent. It is that kind of, you know, I always think it's one of the world's great misquotes when people say um, money is the root of all evil. Of course, that isn't the actual quote. The quote is the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, and it's quite a significant difference in that. And that you can see how possibly... Uh, the love of money is undermining it. Should fans have a kind of percentage? Could they be? Should there always be a percentage allocated I, to fans? My view is there are some bits of the game, like the badge, 
um, the kit, maybe the stadium as well, certainly borrowing against the stadium, um, that um, and the league registration um, that fans ought to have some control over. Although trying to define what a fan is, right, who exactly is a fan, that is quite difficult because then you're saying you can only have a say in Chelsea, for example, if you've got a season ticket or a membership, both of which require money to to uh, um, acquire. Uh, but nevertheless, I think you should... I think that should exist, uh, and I think that problem is soluble. Um, and I think, you know, what we learned from the European Super League was the absence of that is quite serious. So yes. I do think um, fans ought to have a stake. I, I think it might not be very practical, given the sort of amounts of investment that's necessary to put, all, to put the fans in charge of it. And let's, for example, say that you decided you were going to have fan directors um, you know the problem with those people is they then become they then may become liable for the decisions that you that, that that you make. You know there are legal difficulties with doing that. But I'm but I think but I do think we need to do something about fans' control of the fundamentals. So the the, the bottom line of it is football's not a normal business because because we don't want the clubs to go bust because they represent crucial institutions in their local communities and we don't want them to go bust and as we won't allow them to go bust we have to therefore have some system of regulation which is what you do when you when anything can't be allowed to go bust yeah that sort of um ensuring it i think that's quite an interesting point that you're making you've made this about the lord you've made it about is reform what you've got rather than break it all down and try and reconstitute it in another way you know work with what you've got um uh, and i always remember actually when i was at art school and we were drawing and the teacher he, he would go around and correct you and stuff like that and he stopped the whole class and he said um you know when a when a drawing is going wrong you keep working on it and when it's right you then turn the page over um, and I suppose I'm talking about life as well, he said. And I thought that was a wonderful piece of advice. In a sense, that's what you're saying is you've got something there. Keep working on it until it works properly. Then you can have a debate about uh, uh, about um, uh, what you you finally do it. It's interesting as a journalist. Do, do you find difficult writing from you obviously do pieces and now you're writing a book about your family is is it a different skill do you have to sort of import a different way of working and longer sentences and fewer paragraphs no. or okay so not longer sentence so first of all i don't 100 percent know the answer to your question because i've only just started writing um and um so uh i i'm employing fundamentally the same technique um because readers seem to enjoy the columns um, so that is to um, try to tell thematic stories through a lot of interesting facts and stories and um, uh, rather than a lot of pompous exposition if I can avoid it. Uh, and I certainly won't mean that the story should be longer, but you can breathe a bit more because you're not writing so tightly, but then you have to be careful. My son looked at... Um, a bit of it this morning that I just started on and said um, that was one too many anecdote right in that story um, in that bit because at the beginning so the idea of it is before I tell you what happened to my parents I want you to fall in love with them uh, uh, and that's important to the emotional uh, 
bit of the book and it's also important to tell the story of these people living who come back to live in an ordinary suburban life who start living an ordinary suburban life but have this extraordinary um experience in between um and you can you know there are any number of affectionate stories i can tell about my parents but you've got to stop at some point so that is the so i'm trying to employ the same techniques also to be fairly rigid about deadlines my grandfather my mother's side was one of the leaders of berlin's jury um so as you can imagine he, he was quite a celebrated political figure um and um uh, in his own life i'm not much written about in books but he's been but there was quite a lot of press uh, about him loads of papers he is essentially a bottomless pit of research and you have to stop at some point yeah well, that that uh, another great lesson in life is everybody needs a good editor, don't they? Uh, and that, really that's important. that's fundamentally important. The other thing I did because I, I I did a book on advertising, and I I'm an art director, so I spent my life taking words out rather than putting them in. But I, I did in the end, I thought narrative arc helps. You know, you start at the beginning and just go. I think that's why there are so many crime novels. You know, somebody gets murdered, somebody has to solve it. It's got a sort of an obvious narrative arc. I sense that's going to be a wonderful book. And I think you should uh, make sure your son reads more of it to ensure that you're... <laughs> yeah, he's a very good copy editor, is the reason why I asked Absolutely. him. Absolutely. We ask everybody kind of... Uh, what have you sacrificed today? Anything? Is it something for breakfast or? Wow, that's a good question. What have I sacrificed today? I must say, I don't, as I said at the beginning, I don't think of I go through my life feeling how sacrificial I am in my lucky existence. Well, I certainly um, pushed myself to make sure that I got my quota of uh, done of the book. And I guess that I did want to turn to other things and didn't because I'd need to discipline myself. I know that if I do 3,000 words a week, I won't hit the deadline. And if I do 4,000 words a week, I will. Uh, and that means that if I've got four, you know, if I can write on four days, um, because there are other things I've got to do in my life, and it doesn't take all day to do this, but write, write on four days, I can I can do 1,000 words in those days. So I have to reach 1,000 words. And today that really did require me not to stop when I did actually feel... I wanted to. That's like an athlete, isn't it? You've you, you, you've got to put the, you've got to put the training in. You've got to do those many words, Daniel. It it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm a great fan of yours, even though I'm a Guardian reader. <laughs> I try and I try and sort of you know encounter the other side. I think it's fundamentally important, and the the, the power of truth. It's fundamentally important in art. There's a great thing about without truth, art loses its power. Uh, without truth in storytelling, it loses its power. I want to thank you very much. We should um, I agree with that very strongly. We should look out for those books. If you haven't read uh, everything in moderation, it really is worth reading. Intelligent and witty, it was described as. And we can't wait for your book of your family, which will be, I think, a fabulous story. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. A real, real pleasure. And hopefully we'll meet for real as opposed to over Zoom. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sacrifice and Success, a podcast brought to you by Electric Glue an independent media agency that believes to succeed in the complex media landscape you need to sacrifice. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Next month, we'll be talking to another fascinating creative about what they've had to give up to be where they are today. Until then, goodbye and good luck. 
This podcast was created by Soho Radio Studios.